0: Good morning. Our Old Testament reading comes from Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 22 through 24. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions. Of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. This is the word of the Lord. Romans 1 28 through 32, and we're wrapping up this section where Paul is addressing the Gentiles and the sin of the Gentiles in a larger section on the wrath of God before we get to Paul's doctrine of justification, chapter 3. Verse 28 this is the word of God. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, or a depraved mind, some translations say a corrupt mind. To do what ought not to be done, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers, haters of God, haughty, boastful. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Father, now we do pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, acknowledging, O God, that we can do nothing without you. We pray, O God, that this morning you would set our hearts aflame with your spirit and zeal for the truth and for what is right. Lord, the truth of your word, sanctify us in that truth now, we pray, that we might leave this place differently than the way we came in, in Christ's name, amen. When Maribel and I first got married, we attended a little storefront church in Palmdale, California, and we were in church every Sunday, and about twice a month, a man would visit, and he would sit in the back, and this was the kind of church where they have at a testimony service. A testimony service, no, there's no pre-planned situation, it's just whoever pops up. And this gentleman would stand up, and he would start out with a song, and then he would talk about how God saved him from the streets. And you could feel his heart when he testified. Some people got up because they wanted to be seen, but, but this guy really had a testimony. And when he would sing, he would have tears in his eyes. His name was Brother Jerome. We got to know Jerome, and I was struck by how raw and powerful his conversion was, and how his love for Jesus was so so powerful. Jerome became a Christian one day while working on a car. Someone, actually another person who we met later, you remember Dennis Medina, wrapped up Bible tracks with a rubber band and would drive down the street and throw them out of the window at people and say, Jesus loves you. Well, one day Jerome was working on a car and he heard someone yell and the track hit him in the head and he stood up and the, 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 the hood hit the back of his head and, and he, was, he didn't know what was thrown at him and he got under the car. He didn't know it was a bomb, I mean, it was a rock, he didn't know what it was and it was this Bible track And, you know, with his head hurting, he opened up this Bible track and read, you know, the gospel. And he said he had no church background, and right there and then, uh, he said he believed. Um, Jerome was someone who had been on the streets before he became a Christian, and Jerome had shared in our discussions that he had, while he was on the street, contracted AIDS, And he was a good brother, and I would work the night shifts, and I would get off of work, and I would swing by Jerome's house to pick him up to go out for breakfast in the morning. Um, And he was probably 15 years older than I was, Um, but I just, I loved his zeal for the Lord. We'd go out to breakfast, and Jerome, at breakfast in the morning, we'd be at a Denny's or um, some, you know, some diner, and Jerome would sit down, we would sit down to pray, and at the top of his lungs he would say, Father! And he would slam his hands down on the table and the silverware would jump up and down. (laughs) And uh, it was embarrassing. But it was not embarrassing for Jerome. Because Jerome would say, I was a fool for the devil once, and now I'm a fool for Jesus. may not be the most apologetically wise way to share your faith, but he just didn't care because as he compared his life in Christ to his life out in the world, he wanted it to be as extreme. One day I asked Jerome how he contracted AIDS, and after pausing for a moment, he said, Jordan, I was as far down as you can get. Let's just say when I was out in the world, it was anything goes. I didn't have to ask him what he meant by that. I knew what Jerome meant by that. Why is it, we might ask, some people have to go so far down before coming back up. Kent Hughes in his Romans commentary says, we're made a little lower than the angels and a little bit above the beasts. Angels are spirits without bodies, and animals have bodies without spirits. And man is in between because he's both body and spirit. And at times, man moves upward toward the spiritual or downward toward the animal. And we become like that upon which we focus. it seems like our society seems to keep moving downward. Seems like our culture is in this perpetual downward slide. And no one seems to be able to say, okay, this far, no further. The sort of slide into depravity no one seems to be able to stop it, right? It, just, it seems to just keep getting worse and worse. And once people are given over, they seem unable to draw the line. You're in that life, and your mind is given over. It's just you're unable to draw the line. So what's the answer? Why does God give a civilization over to evil and wickedness? Well, Ken Hughes goes on to say that God does it because when darkness prevails and despair and violence are widespread, men and women are most ready to come to the light. I want us to see this passage this morning from Romans as not saints becoming sinners, but essentially people starting out at a low place and going upward. Because Paul's movement in the book of Romans is upward toward the gospel, So it's not the gospel and then people fell away going downward. It's this condition of human beings where we're all under sin, the Gentiles, the Jews, and anyone in between. And he sets the sort of pretext for his declaration and proclamation of the gospel, the good news. And so what Paul is trying to say is not that humanity's situation is bleak and hopeless, far from it, But before we get to that hope, he's sort of being really honest about just how wicked we as human beings are. God gives mankind up so that in their despair, they give themselves to his grace. Isaiah 9 and 2 says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. You see, the movement is from on the bottom going upward. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has dawned. And this is the trajectory of these verses in Romans. Not people starting from good, going to bad, but people being lost and ultimately becoming saved as the gospel enters in. If the path to God were a narrative arc in a movie, you know how a narrative arc in a movie works? There is the sort of, Main character who has a good story, something tragic happens, the, the arc, I don't know, from your visual, uh, you know, something, his life is coming along like this, something tragic happens, and then he goes down, and then, the, and then towards the end, he goes back up, something happens. Well, that's sort of the arc of redemption in the Bible. We call it creation, fall, redemption, consummation, Creation, the fall, the redemption, the consummation. And Paul deals right here with the first two, the creation and the fall. And so the first thing we see are darkened minds. Humans created last week, like we talked about, with a general knowledge of God, general revelation, but they suppress it. We talked about that. And when they do, God gives them over. And this is what God does When people refuse to retain the knowledge of God in their minds, God says, when when God's wrath comes on them, he says, fine, do it your way. So that's the wrath of God. We talked about that. The wrath of God is also at the end of the age in judgment when God will judge all human beings. But we see the wrath of God right now when God hands people over to their sins saying, there you go. Do what you want to do. Have it your own way. And what happens then is our thinking, not just our behavior, begins to deconstruct altogether. It says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Theologians call this the noetic effects of sin from the Greek word nos for thought or mind. Our faculties of reason and logic may be working, but our moral intellect does not work well apart from God. Our moral intellect does not work well apart from God. It's why smart people do immoral things. We hear about it, we see it all the time. Remember the story of an astronaut, female astronaut who drove all the way across the country to eliminate a romantic rival. You may remember the story. She was a NASA astronaut and engineer, probably brilliant, caught up in some kind of love triangle. And they said when they, they found her, you know, she had a gun and rope and a shovel in the trunk and she had, funny detail sounds crazy, had wore diapers so she could drive cross country without stopping for bathroom breaks. And that sounds nuts for someone so smart and intelligent and accomplished and successful to do, but that's what happens, and that's what I think Paul is focusing on here, is that God gives people over to a debased mind, where part of their mind, their logic, their intellect, their reasoning is working fine, but the moral aspect of our minds, because of the fall, do not function the way it's supposed to function, apart from our Creator. The 1968 Philip K. Dick novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which later became the inspiration for the Blade Runner movie, is a novel in which a bounty hunter who is tasked with eliminating six escaped Nexus 6 model androids. The androids have become self-aware and have killed their maker and are now on the run. They were made for a good purpose, but have perverted their design in isolation from their designer. Western society has killed God. We may be incredible in our technological and medical advancements, but morally we're falling apart at the seams. We don't function properly apart from God. Our minds have become darkened. And when the mind becomes darkened, so does the behavior. Second thing we look at, so not just a darkened mind, but darkened behavior. And Paul gives a list of about 20 sins when both our behavior and our mind become darkened. The mind, it is filled with all unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, it's full of envy, Strife, deceit, maliciousness, and we become gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, for Paul, this is a picture of the Gentile nations. Everyone is guilty, but for them, for Paul, the Greco-Roman culture of his day excelled in certain sins, in sexually unconstrained, treacherous violence, and irreverence. They were especially good at these things. And if you notice, most of these sins on the screen are harm done by people to other people. They're not just sort of grievances against God in the heart by not honoring God in the heart. They're sins that we commit against one another. Harm done by people against other people. Again, Paul is thinking of the debauchery of Rome's temples and the violence of the Colosseum. If you know anything about Roman history, you've watched a couple documentaries, you've read a few books, you watched a few programs, you know how Rome was For all of Rome's might and law and order, she was pitiless and ruthless. And the violence in Rome, in the Roman Empire, that Paul sees is what motivates his words here. Not just the violence, but the sexual depravity. But what's so chilling is the last verse. Though they know God's righteous decree and those who practice such things deserve to die, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That could have been written a year ago. I mean, it could have been written six months ago. What does it mean that they knew God's righteous decree? What What does that mean? Well, it means that human beings know deep down that immoral practices and sins deserve punishment we know it we can suppress it but we know it in fact one of the reasons why the gospel does resonate with people when you say that Jesus died in your place for the punishment you deserved you almost don't even have to explain it I mean you should explain it and you should have an answer prepared but the truth is is when you say those words that Jesus died for us and the penalty of our sins, deep down, we know we deserve punishment. Because as Paul said, we know God's righteous decree, which is a way of saying we know that the sort of moral order of the universe requires punishment for sin. Paul says they know it. And I'm taking Paul at his word. I think he's right. I think all human beings on some level, though they can suppress it, they can try to sear their conscience, they know that violating God's laws deserve punishment. And this is what he says, but they not only do them, but they give approval to others who practice them. Why might that be? Why might we commit sins and not just commit sins but also give approval and celebrate other people who are doing them? Well, the logical seeming first answer that pops up is we don't want to be alone in our rebellion. Somehow we feel better when other people are joining us in our sins. If we're the only one doing something, you know, there's there's maybe the conviction is greater but there is something particularly reprehensible about celebrating the sins that we're doing. And in some sense, Paul is suggesting that commending evil is worse than or just as bad as committing the evil. Because, you know, sometimes people you can commit a sin and you feel bad about it and it's regrettable. But to extinguish that regret and remorse and then pretend that it's a good thing in Paul's mind, is particularly wicked, right? You feel this sense of conviction in your heart. You don't know what to do with it. So instead of repenting, acknowledging what you've done is wrong, you completely suppress that, and then you say, "Not only is it not wrong; it's good. It's a good thing what I did." And everyone who commits this sin—and I have no particular sin in mind here. I'm, I'm just, I'm speaking generally. Okay, so don't think I'm sort of euphemistically aiming at one sin or another. I'm not. But there's something about that that Paul finds particularly wicked, not just to commit a sin, but to celebrate it and to celebrate others who are committing those sins. He's saying that those who do that are sort of in another category for legitimating evil and teaching others to join in. John Murray said, we're not only bent on damning ourselves, but we congratulate others in the doing of those things we know yield in damnation. As I said a minute ago, it's such an accurate picture of today. It seems like every immoral behavior has its own parade. So what is the answer? For us who find that, even as Christians, we still have remaining indwelling sins in us right we're not celebrating but we still recognize that there are certain things that we still struggle with well later in the book of romans paul is going to tell the christians in rome on the category of the debased mind don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When we become Christians, when our hearts are transformed by the saving power of the gospel, the sin issue is not immediately corrected in us. Sins don't just disappear, and I don't like the language of people talking about they've been delivered from sin. I think what we've been delivered from is the guilt and the penalty of our sins, but we are not automatically delivered from all kinds of sinning. I remember, it must have been 30 years ago, a friend of my mother's came to church, and it was the kind of church I was in. It was kind of like a holiness, Pentecostal church, and I remember... Uh, she came to church and uh, we had an altar call that was the kind of church that had altar calls and she came down and she sort of gave her life to the Lord and got baptized and I say gave her life to the Lord and afterwards she went out in the back of the church and, you know, she was still wet from the baptism and she lit up a cigarette because she was a smoker and the pastor walked right up to her and snatched the cigarettes right out of her hand and crushed them in front of her. You don't need these anymore. (laughs) He just tossed them. You know, and she just kind of looked there, you know, seeing her, you know, $7 pack of cigarettes go in the trash. (laughs) Because it's this idea that magically somehow whatever habits we had in the world automatically disappear. And that is just not reality. In fact, that's just, the Bible doesn't promise that and that is not the Christian life. What happens is over time through the renewing of our minds we become closer to the Lord in our actual behavior. And Remaining indwelling sins are mortified as we draw closer to the Lord and our minds are renewed. Paul says this also in Ephesians 2. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now, The Greek construction there, it's passive, so it's the idea that the Spirit is renewing us, right? We're receiving the renewal through the sanctifying power of the Spirit, but there is an imperative there that we are putting on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We confess together our sins from that passage, and it is true that all of those sins may not necessarily find you where you are at this moment, But it is good for us to recognize that God has called us to a life of holiness. But before we get there, we embrace the saving knowledge of God's grace and what that means for us. That we are part of the family of God, not because of what we do primarily, but what God does for us. How do you know if your mind is being renewed, though? How do you know if you're being renewed in the spirit of your mind? You're being transformed by the renewal of your mind. Well, one question we might want to ask is, is the pattern of your living generally one that pursues righteousness and obedience? Or is your pattern of behavior habitual sinning? Now, the reason I even mention that is I recently asked myself, that question in reflection of whether my personal sins disqualify me as a pastor. I thought if all of my sins were laid out on the table and the elders or a church board said, how do you answer for this? As I thought about that, it shot back in my spirit. I feel like the the Holy Spirit just shot back this answer in me. Jordan, Jordan, are you pursuing righteousness and obedience? Not are you always righteous and obedient. But are you pursuing it? Is it your heart's pursuit to be transformed in the renewing of your mind and become more and more like the image of your creator? Even though you fail, even though you fall, even though you sin. And the answer resoundedly is yes. Yeah. Yeah. I am pursuing a life of righteousness and obedience. I'm not always righteous and, and obedient. There are days I fail and there are things that I do sometimes that cause me shame or I spend time in prayer feeling unworthy of God's love. But I believe that's the answer for every forgiven sinner. Every truly forgiven sinner, the answer is yes, I fall, I fail, I'm not always righteous and obedient, but the pattern of my life is generally one of pursuing God's righteousness and holiness. Is it your heart's pursuit to be righteous and holy in God's sight? I believe that's the answer that every forgiven sinner has to that question. Let us pursue Christ and be faithful to the one Who was victorious over sin in this life we will never be completely victorious over sinning but what we can be is completely faithful to the one who was we can pursue faithfulness to the one who was completely victorious over sinning and that is Jesus let's pray Father, now our sins are always in front of us, but you promise that you have removed them from your sight and from your thoughts. As far as the east is from the west, you have forgotten about them. We recognize that we fall short. We also recognize, even as we come into this place, that there is a certain tension that we have that we have not lived up to your holy, righteous standards But help us be confident in the grace and love of your son, Jesus, who was completely victorious over sin and who, by our union with him and faith in him, we are counted as righteous. Remove all remaining guilt and shame that we may fully embrace the love and confidence of our calling as members of the family of God and in the kingdom of God, through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray, amen.